Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the grievous gifts and ancient artifacts of Tolkien's Legendarium. Well, happy December, Jude. What a turd of a year this has been. <laughs> right? Wow. I, I'm glad we're, we're making it through. Let's, I mean, you know, we haven't got through it yet, but uh, we're almost there, guys. Everybody, all you folks, oh, hang on. We'll be okay. I'm sure 2021 is going to be better than 2020. Jazz hands. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's going to be fine. You uh, know what? We're going to do, we're going to get in the coals to sack of years. We're just going to do an about face. We're going to come right back out. <laughs> just like we are with these corrections that I have coming up. Very nice. I've got two segue. kind of, yeah, thank you. I <laughs> That was very labored <laughs> and I liked it. So in episode 28, we talked about framing devices and I'm pretty sure I said the green dragon instead of the green knight. So sorry about that. I just guess I have dragons on the brain. Hey, I don't. Speaking I don't of which, I was very disappointed to learn that they delayed the green knight again. Still oh, not out yet. I really want to see that movie. Me too. Like, big Dev Patel fan. And also, you know, come on. We, we worked so hard on that episode. That would be amazing to, to see the movie. But that's okay. We'll see it eventually. It's yep. fine. Also in episode 28, I mean, okay, why on Arrow's green earth did I start pontificating about Anglo-Saxon literature as I know nothing about it? Why did I do that? <laughs> I think I said something like, well, there's not that much Anglo-Saxon text. I mean, That's not true. That's not true. Tolkien studied them so much. Compared to Come English on. texts, there's not that many. <laughs> it's all relative. There's a lot, co- there's a lot compared to, like, Gothic. Uh, well, uh, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm embarrassed. I make no promises to stay in my lane in the future, but I will try. Uh, and, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm dumb. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I made mistakes, but uh, unlike Steph, uh, I make no attempt to catalog them quite as uh, exhaustively as she does. So, uh, yeah, if you have beef with that process, feel free to call me out on Twitter and uh, maybe I will uh, put them in the next corrections call stack. Ooh, well, we're going to have so many corrections no. after this episode. <laughs> We've got many audacious heirlooms to impart, so let's begin. It's the end of the year. We find ourselves in the last month of this flaming pile of garbage year that is 2020. And uh, we thought, you know, there's a lot of December holidays that involve gift giving and passing down of traditions and, and family stuff. Well, perhaps not this year, but usually. So we decided that we would do a list of some of the wackiest, most touching and utterly notorious artifacts in Middle Earth. Given, found, stolen, what have you. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of cool shit in Tolkien's Legendarium. Yeah. It's a very traditional theme in sort of epic tales, and Tolkien loves it, and it's all over the Legendarium. Definitely. It would not be an Atherbeth list episode without a really dumb theme that makes very little sense. So we've decided, we've, (laughs) I forced, I forced Jude, well, we decided to do this list as the 12 days of winter. 
So, you know, we're going for like a 12 days of Christmas, but it's a little bit more inclusive. So we're going for winter. That's right. We've got 12-ish. I say ish because I shoved a few more in there. <laughs> uh, artifacts for you to feast upon during this holiday season. That is so lucky. Lucky you. <laughs> check your check your boxes and look inside because you got a bunch of crap you don't want. Um that being said, this being said, there's like a ton of great artifacts. Uh, so if we miss any of your favorites, you just let us know on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you can send me a handwritten note with your hot takes about what we missed. Um, I want to know. Uh, these are just what I chose and Jude, Jude and I talked about it. These are the things that we chose, um, but they may not be your favorites. So I guess before we start, Jude, do you have any family heirlooms that have been passed down and that you will someday bestow upon your young son? Um, hmm. I think the closest I've got there is my grandfather made a bunch of wooden toys. He was a carpenter. Not by trade, but by uh, hobby. Um, and a very talented one. And he made a bunch of wooden toys for his kids and for me that uh, my son really loves to play with. And uh, when he outgrows them, those will go back into a box and uh, I will give them to him for his his kids when he has them, if he has them. But I don't know about anything else. Uh, my family's were like second and third generation American and we don't have a lot of stuff that uh, made it from the, you know, made it over from there. So pretty much all the junk in my grandma's house is kind of all we've got. Um, <laughs> so there's a really sweet rooster mug I, I managed to snake from my grandma's house. So maybe I'll pass down that sweet rooster mug. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, my family is the same. Like we're just not that, I don't think either side is terribly... Uh like sentimental or anything. I'm like kind of the outlier. I like love to hang on to shit and I have nobody to give it to. So I'm going to will everything to your son. So good luck. <laughs> oh, good. Gigabytes good luck, of pictures of me in my early teens. I'm excited oh. for him to see those. Yes. The archive. <laughs> yep. He can have the archive. Poor guy. He's going to be like, I don't want this trash from that old crazy lady, <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the thing. So some of these things we're going to talk about are like heirlooms, and some of them are not. They're just kind of nifty things. Artifacts tend to wander to different owners um, by various means, and um, a lot of them, and some things carry, you know, like very deep weight, and some things don't. So I don't know. We'll let you kind of decide how you feel about these items. But let's start. So on the first day of winter, I'm doing it. Lady Idril gave to me. Oh, boy. The stone of Arendil. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Welcome to this episode. I You're going to hate it. I was not prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can wait till I get to number five. Well, I feel like we should preface this, uh, th this episode by saying how late you were up finishing this outline. I, I only slept a few hours, but I feel like a, like a person at one with the universe right now. I've got big brain energy, Jude. <laughs> Okay. Well, it's radiating around my dining room. <laughs> okay, so there you go. There's the scene set, listeners. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about the LSR, aka the Elf Stone, aka the Stone of Arendelle. So, this is a fabulous green jewel 
Or maybe it's two green jewels. <gasps> what? How could it be maybe one or two things? Well, I will tell you, folks. You may have heard of it. Or you may not have. It's um pretty big in the unfinished tales, uh, which I have read now. So, you know, only took me two years to get there, but I did. <laughs> So this green jewel burned with a beautiful light within it. It was said to, if you looked through it, it could make old, withered, gross things young and beautiful again. And it seemed to have some, like, healing powers for the wearer. In the Unfinished Tales, Christopher Tolkien writes... There's, the, there's basically a small section called the LSR. It was on a rough manuscript about four pages long. And it and it gives kind of a complicated history of this stone. And there's, there's uh, different stories that kind of go against each other a little bit. And I don't know if that was Tolkien doing that because we find that throughout history anyway. Or if he just hadn't decided what he wanted to do yet. I have no idea. But it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's one of the problems with building a legendarium off of Tolkien's stream of consciousness ideas onto the back of napkins and students' <laughs> essays is it's hard to know what he intended with some of these thoughts. Exactly, exactly right. And so I guess you can kind of take it as you will. And maybe that's part of the fun of being a Tolkien fan is you get to kind of make your own. You can choose your own adventure yeah. in some ways. Um, okay, so there's a couple different stories about how this jewel came to life. One of them, it, it seems to have come from Gondolin, perhaps. In one story, there is a jewel smith named Anerdil, and he, it was said that he loved all green growing things, and he made this jewel. It was a very clear green jewel, and the light that passed through it uh, was reminiscent of like the sun uh, dappling, light, light, light dappling through the leaves, um, which I think is really lovely. Yeah. He gave, in this story, he gave this jewel to Idril, who was King Turgon's daughter, and she wore it upon her breast, and some say that it saved her from the burning of Gondolin. She then gave the sound to her son, Eärendil, and said that it would keep, if he kept it, it would keep him safe from all of the scary stuff in Middle-earth that was wanted to harm him. And she told him never to give it to anybody else, but always to keep it. And so in the Unfinished Tales, it says basically when Eärendil, you know, passed away from Middle-earth and went back west, the stone went with him at this time. But wait a minute! I thought the LSR was in the Lord of the Rings, so how could it have gone back? That doesn't make any sense. Well, there's there's lots of... Basically, some people, in some stories, it's the same jewel that went and came back. They say that Gandalf brought it back. Um, he was, of course, going by the name Aloran at the time. Um, he brought it back to Middle-earth and gave it to Galadriel, who was missing the Undying Lands, and she was kind of proclaiming that how sad it was that all the trees and the flowers of Middle-earth, you know, became beautiful and then died. Um, and he said, well, then use this jewel. It's from Yavanna. She sends it to you so that you can make your realm in Middle-earth undying and beautiful. Um, and he said to her, you can't keep it. You have to pass it on. When the time comes, basically he said, you are going to grow weary of Middle-earth. And at that time, before you leave, someone's going to come along who needs to receive the stone. And he will have the same name as the stone. And of course, we know who that is. It's Aragorn. LSR. So that's a nice story. Yeah. Do you buy it? I don't know. I don't know. Another story is that actually there was a second stone. 
uh, by the same name that was made. Our pal Celebrimbor, not, we're going to hear about this guy a lot. You all know him as everybody's favorite elven jewelsmith. He was super in love with Galadriel. I'm actually surprised we did not add him to the burn episode from way back when. We might have to do burn point, point two. Because he loved her and she didn't love him back. But that's okay. She told him, hey, I'm sad that Middle Earth kind of is fading and the trees die and it makes me sad. And he's like, I don't want you to be sad. I'm going to make you a jewel. Actually, I was also in Gondolin when Anerdil was there. He was my buddy and he was a better jeweler than me. But if he hadn't been around, I would have been the top jeweler. So I'm going to make you another one. So he did. It was not as fancy as the first one, um, but it was really, he set it into a beautiful brooch in the shape of an eagle with outstretched wings. And he gave it to her and she used it to make the land gorgeous. In that story, she then gives it to Celebrion, her daughter, who then gives it to Arwen. There's also, in the Unfinished Tales, Chris Tolkien writes that there's a short passage at the end of the manuscript that kind of boils this down and says that Elisar was made in Gondolin by Celebrimbor. It went to Idril and then to Irlendil, who then passed away. The second stone was made by Celebrimbor in Eregion um, at the request of Gladriel before Sauron raised to power. Uh, and that's what it is. So is it one stone? Is it two stones? I don't know. What do you think, Jude? What do you like? I like it being two stones because I think the more complicated, messy relationships there are among the elves, the better. Yeah. I think the idea of the elves being these upright, perfect characters is uh, boring. So the idea that there's a second LSR purely because Celebrimbor is an emo boy that is pining (laughs) after a girl, that works for me. Yeah. Uh, Dude's like that's that's on brand. I I like the drama. Yeah, no, I'm into that. Totally. Well, we know, of course, in the Lord of the Rings, that Galadriel gives the elf stone to Aragorn, um, who's named Elisar. And uh, there's a part in Morgoth's Ring uh, where they talk about laws and customs among the Eldar, and and uh, it's said that perhaps this was like a wedding gift from the bride's family to the groom, and foreshadowing his marriage to Arwen. But yeah, so it is something that, you know, so it didn't have a ton of owners, but depending on what story you go with, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. it's a, a very interesting piece and it, you yeah. know, it's definitely an heirloom of of, uh, of that family, I would say. Agreed. Agreed. Let's do number two, the second day of winter. Um, I need to go to it, but it is Narsil slash later Andrew. Everybody's favorite broken-ass sword, right? Uh, Fun fact, my son likes to run around. uh, I gave him a small key in the shape of uh, Narsil. because. Well, I bought these key blanks in the shape of Narsil Narsil that I thought I would use, but they're actually gigantic compared to other keys, so I never did. But I gave him one, and he thought it was amazing. Uh, so for a week, he was running around shouting, um, Anduril, Flame of the West, like wow. everywhere. It was hilarious. That's amazing. No, oh, that's very, oh, you have such a cool son. Jeez. He's very that's funny. Amazing. He's, yeah, it's, it was very funny. That's rad. Well, just to continue with the theme, on the second day of winter, Telkar of Nogrod gave to me, Narsil, litter known as Anduril, bleh, bleh. <laughs> I really, we really hammered these in. Yeah. Wow. 
Okay. Yeah. Painful. So we, everyone knows this is, this is a pretty well-known object, so we don't have to go too far into it. But Narsil was a sword forged by the dwarven smith known as Telkar of Nogrod in the First Age. In Quenya, Narsil means red and white flame. So that's cool. Uh-huh. It could just be pink flame, but no, that's not. It's not pink flame. That would be lame. That would be my sword. <gasps> I want to name my sword pink flame. Okay. In the Second Age, it became an heirloom of Elros, the first king of Numenor. Basically, it hung out in Numenor at a swim-up bar for quite a long time. And if you don't know that reference, check out Athrobeth episode 2, where we talk about swim-up bars (laughs) in Numenor. (laughs) It's a really hot take. At the end of the Second Age, it came to Elendil. And Elendil, of course we know, used Narsil during the Battle of Dragoland and at the Siege of Barador, where things did not go great for him. He was murdered by Sauron, and the sword's blade was broken into two pieces, which is why it's the second day of winter. Unlike in the movies, where it's all a bunch of cinematically interesting shards. Yeah, nimbly-pibbly bits. Yeah. <laughs> Really, it was only two pieces. Of course, we know Eolindil's son Isildur took up the shard and cut the one ring from Sauron's hand. The shards were saved from the disaster of Gladden Fields. That's when Isildur got jumped by those orcs and got killed. Mm-hmm. His esquire, Otar, saved them and brought them to Rivendell. And Elrond was like, cool, 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 cool. These can be reforged once the one ring is found. And they become they became heirlooms of the kings of Arnor. Of course, after our boy Aragorn kind of starts to come up in the Third Age in 3018, it is rena- it is reforged and renamed Anduil. As your son would say, the flame of the West! Yep. Yep. And he carried it during events of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's uh, The first of Galadriel's gifts that she gives to Aragorn in Lothlorien was a sheath that was made specially for the sword. So that's handy. I guess, what did he do with it until then? He just always held it. Uh, the shards in the books he has the shards in a sheath oh she sharth that's hard to say he sells sheath sheath shards by the sharf sheaths yeah in the movies it's all on that fancy altar but in the books uh, in the the scene where Strider introduces himself he pulls out like a broken sword hilt and is like can't really threaten you with this now can I (laughs) oh that's awesome He's like, look at me. But he probably still was sexy, even though I mean, he's broken. He, yeah, I'm sure he could have. To what? Put some duct tape on it? Well, I'm sure he could have beaten them up with a broken sword. I mean. Oh, I'm sure he could have. <laughs> well, this sword, once reforged, helps him kind of legitimize his status as the heir of Isildur. Especially, particularly helpful when asking the dead men of Dunharrow to join him to fulfill their oaths. So I think this sword is kind of what made it happen. Right, Jude? Yeah, that's always... Okay. Uh, yes. It does. Exactly how? (laughs) I've never... That chapter has always been very confusing to me because for a series of books that are long on myth and short on magic, for him to be like, oh, by the way, I have an army of ghosts, zombies. (laughs) Not very clear. And they obey me because they promised, I guess, my sword. I don't know. The whole thing is such such a bizarre like interlude in that book. I I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love that 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 section, yeah. especially in the books. The movie section, uh, not my favorite, honestly. I think it's a little silly. It's like a silly sort of like Deus Ex Machina. 
Ghost Dinner, whatever. <laughs> um, but in the books, the the ride of the Grey Company is like one of my favorite chapters because it really is Aragorn's like putting it all on the line there. Yeah. And you get to see how he is viewed by people that know who he is. Like you've kind of, you've been introduced to Aragorn and you've learned who he is, but now you see him through the eyes of his fellow rangers and through these elves that have known him his whole life. And it gives you a, an, an interesting, different perspective on Aragorn. And he's the, doing this epic ride to rouse up these these betrayers. And then you get there and he's just like, hey, ghosts, come fight for me. And it's just such a weird fucking chapter. Like, yeah, I just, it's always, I mean... I really do need to go back and read like the histories about that chapter and figure out like, I mean, I'm sure there's some references there. I've never, I should go back and, and read the histories on that section. I never have, but I should, because it's a weird section. That's interesting. It is. It's really weird. It's like, everything goes very goth for a little bit and I like it. Yeah. I think we needed to do like a really good goth episode where we, we, all of Tolkien's <laughs> like most gothiest moments. So we could do that in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the sword. Um, Very, very... Well known, I would say. Yeah. Um, everyone knows Aragorn's sword. And kind of a nifty, I mean, what happens to it? I don't know, actually. I didn't look it up. Maybe it was buried with it, huh? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I believe that's I the know. case. I could be mistaken, but I, yeah. I I, believe that's the case. Well, we're not going to dwell on that. Let's move on to the third day of winter. On the third day of winter, Celebrimbor gave to me three elven rings under the sky. La 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 la. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I like that one. Your delivery of the of Celebrimbor was on point. <laughs> Celebrimbor. Very Thank nice. <laughs> it's a percussive name. I like it. Yeah. Well, this is this is also so we ha- I believe we've talked about these three beauties before on this show. I mean, how could we not have? Yeah, so we I have. shall cover them. We shall cover them quite quickly. Celebrimbor made three beautiful rings. Everyone knows that if you've seen Pete Jackson's movies, it's the three rings made for the elves um, in yep. Kate Blanchett's nice uh, bass voice. Um, yes. So, Anatar, who was actually, stupid Sauron, disguised as the Lord of Gifts and emissary for the Valar, came to Eregion, and he starts kind of bending the wills of these smiths to to, like... To what he wanted to do, basically. And he kicked out Galadriel at some point. It's a whole thing. You should look it up. It's very interesting. And he forges this one ring, right? Well, at the same time, our good buddy, Celebrimbor, who is, like, of good heart, realized that this that things were not going well with this guy. When he found out that he made the run ring, he was like, fuck. So he went to Galadriel. He took his elf rings that he had made. And he went to Galadriel and he's like, what should I do with these? That's not good. And she's like, okay, let's keep them hidden. Let's disperse them. Let's get him out of here. Let's make sure he, you know, he can't get to them. Because those rings, while they were sort of still under the one ring, as all of them were, they were still bound to it, but they were not under the kind of influence of Sauron. So that's that was their saving grace, right? Yeah. The way I've always thought of it is they were constructed with, with learning descended from him. So they're sort of sharing in the mechanics that makes all those rings work, but they are not corrupted with his will so awesome they can't they they're influenced by the same thing by they're a part of the 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 same sort of pool of mechanics so because sauron created that that mechanism he can sort of influence them subtly that way 
but he can't control them the way he can the others because he ha- he has not contributed any of his will into them. Yeah. That makes that makes perfect sense. And I think that that also goes along with that once the one ring is destroyed, they kind of start to fade a little bit, right? Like their majesty starts to kind of wane. Yeah. Yeah. So there's three of them. Um <clears throat> the first one is called Narya. It was I forgot to write this down, but I'm pretty sure it had a red jewel. It was probably gold with a red jewel. In in the Lord of the Rings, we hear that it was given directly to Círdan, um, who was a lieutenant under Gil-galad. In the Unfinished Tales and in the Silmarillion, it was first given to Gil-galad, who then gave it to Círdan. But either way, it ends up with Círdan, who was a... T- I, I wrote, Teleri Sailor Boy. Hey! <laughs> Which I, I love. <laughs> who then gives it to Gandalf in the Third Age to help Gandalf defeat Sauron. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is said to be the Ring of Fire, which is very cool. I like that. Yep. Um, the second one is Nenya, the ring uh, wa- that was given to Galadriel um, by her <laughs> paramour, <laughs> Celebrimbor. Um, it's mithril. It's made of mithril and set with a white adamant stone. It has said to have the power of concealment and protection against evil and... Like, when most people looked at Galadriel, you would never see the ring. Like, it just wasn't visible to you. However, it was visible to our pal Frodo, for he was also a ring bearer. And Sam kind of saw it as, like, a little glint of starlight through her hand, which I thought was really nice. Yeah. Um, and Jude, I have a que- I have a joke for you. Yeah. Ask me- hey, Jude, ask me what happened to this ring. Ask me what happened to it. What happened to that ring? None your business. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Galadriel took it back to Valinor, aboard the white ship. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what happened to it. Yep. This was the Ring of Water. So we're kind of doing a Captain Planet thing, and I like it. Yeah. The last ring is named Vilya, or maybe it's pronounced Willia. Will you tell me how to pronounce Vilya? I don't know. Vilya, Willia. It was uh, given to Gil-galad, and then it passed to Elrond in the Second Age. It was said to be the strongest of the three elven rings. It was made of gold, with an inlaid with a beautiful sapphire stone. It held power of healing and protection. Perhaps it helped Elrond save Frodo from the Morgul blade wound? I don't know. Either way, it was the water ring, and it went uh, back with Elrond to the Undying Lands, as they all did. And that is that. Bye, Elven Rings. Yep. <laughs> big fun. We had big fun. Yep. All right. So on the fourth day of winter, we have something else. Something about being horny. <sighs> what? That's not even the joke. Okay. On the fourth day of winter, Eowyn gave to me the horn of the mark. And Jude, why do you think I chose for the fourth day to be the horn of the mark? Because fourth Aer Lingus. <laughs> you can't tell what he's laughing. He's doing oh, it so quietly. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I love and hate that joke in equal proportion. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. So let me tell you a little bit about this horn. This comes up in The Return of the King, Chapter 6. When Mary, it's during uh, many partings when they're all peacing out. Mm-hmm. Right, and Mary is getting ready to leave, and what's the hot guy who I like? What's his name? Aomer. Her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that you know. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Yeah, you're not wrong. Aomer and Aowen are like, bye, we're going to leave. Uh, Aomer's like, I want to give you a bunch of true jewels and treasures, but I know you won't take them. 
Uh, but my sister wants to give you a thing. And she gives him a beautiful heirloom of her house. It's a small silver horn uh, with a green baldric and engravings of little horse dudes on it riding like along the length of it. Um, and it also has a number of runes. And Eowyn tells Mary that it was made by the dwarves uh, and it came from the horde of Scatha the Worm, which is a dragon of the Grey Mountains who was actually killed by Errol's grandfather, Fram. And then Errol the Younger brought it north when they settled uh, Rohan. And she said, she tells Mary, quote, He that blows it at need shall set fear in the hearts of his enemies and joy in the hearts of his friends, and they shall hear him and come to him. Uh, which is exactly what he does when we get to chapter eight of the same book, the uh, scoring of the Shire. He blows this horn to kind of raise to raise up all of the, the Shire hobbits to come together. Um, it's the horn call of Buckland. And he, he like uses it and is like, come on guys, let's take down the ruffians. Fuck those guys. We're going to take them out. And it, it basically became an heirloom of his house. And it's still blown um, at sundown every November the 2nd, uh, which is the day uh, in 3019 that they took back the Shire. Um, and it's uh, it's sounded and they have feasts and bonfires. So that's rad. I love that. Yeah. At some point, we should do an episode about the scouring of the Shire and about how, like, boss Merry and Pippin turned into uh, oh, yeah. when they returned to Hobbiton. Merry and Pippin in general become very awesome over the course of their journeys. And when they get back to Hobbiton, they, like, they leave Jokers and they come back, like, knights of the realm basically and i think that's awesome and he i like that he comes back with like this horn and is just like <laughs> i'm a boss like to me he <laughs> comes boss. he comes back like a little mini theoden and that's <laughs> that's pretty awesome honestly yeah that really is. No, it's cool. And I, I, you know, I made this list and, you know, me, I'm a huge Rohan fan. There was no Rohan stuff on here. And I was like, well, that's not going to do. We got to have something on there. Yeah. So it's kind of a minor thing, but it makes a big impression on the Shire. And I like that. No, it's a good one. And let's go on to number five, which I know the real. Okay. The real lyrics of the, of course, is five gold rings. So you thought I was going to do a ring, didn't you? Well, you're wrong. I didn't, because I didn't think about it until it was too late. <laughs> but the item I chose kind of works. So I'm going to say, on the fifth day of winter, Gandalf gave to me Glamdring. Wait, no. Oh, no, I messed it up. Glamdring. Kind of sounds like ring, right? Uh, no, I buy it. Thank you. Oh, my God. I can't believe I messed it up. Oh, I'll never <laughs> get over it. Oh, no. We're having corrections cul-de-sac for next time about learning a song. Well, this is a great, this is a fancy sword. Yeah. We love this sword. Had lots of names. It was called Foe Hammer and Beater. <laughs> <laughs> it can be taken in a number of ways, I suppose, if you're Jude and your mind is 12. No, uh, I, I, I snort because I, uh, this is one of the swords that w originated in the hobbit and you can always tell when something came from the hobbit or started in the hobbit if it sounds a little bit too stupid right like the trolls names are like william and peter paul and mary or something yeah um <laughs> so 
If, yeah. not, I'm not saying those are stupid names. I'm saying they're just very like sort of unlike all yeah, the other it, mystical names. Pretty much anything in Middle Earth, if it sounds slightly off for Middle Earth, <laughs> um, or if it sounds like it's a ripoff of it, of itself, it's from The Hobbit. Yeah, so it's yeah, like, yeah. we're going to see another one of those later on on this list that's like the big banana of ripoffs or one of the two big bananas of uh hobbit ripoffs so oh i think i know which one you're talking about yeah i'm excited too so let's go we can go through this sword pretty fast because it is very well known but it's a white and gold sword with a jeweled hilt and an ivory sheath it was forged uh for turgon the king of gondolin in the first age and he used it to kind of beat up the orcs um during the fall of gondolin and perhaps even the battle of unnumbered tears it would glow blue uh when orcs were nearby and the orcs gave it that really stupid nickname of beater uh because it i don't know because it was beating them up i guess i don't know why would you call a sword beater though are they so dumb that they don't understand like the, the the difference between being beaten with something and being chopped by something <laughs> they should have called it chopper and then it could have had a show about fixing up motorcycles yeah i i just this is or a slicer do they i mean are we implying that the that orcs have no word for like cutting? I don't believe that. I don't know. These That's are, a good question. These are a, a people that live are basically like enslaved to a military regime. They they have to have like forty seven words for like swords <laughs> and sword based actions. There's no way they don't know how to say yeah. cut. So <laughs> I I simply right. have I have beef with the name Beater. All right. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Well, anyway, after the Battle of Gondolin, where Turgon hella died, uh, it was basically, it was, the whereabouts were unknown. It had been plundered many times over, and eventually it ended up in a troll cave in the Misty Mountains. Um, and of course, this is where Jude kind of comes in with his cool hobbit knowledge. We know that Gandalf kicks the butts of those three dummy trolls and turns them into so uh, stone. And uh, Bilbo recovers the key to this, like, treasure cave. And they find Glamdring along with the, uh, Orchrist and Sting. And we're going to talk about Sting in a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it. It was with Gandalf during the events of the Lord of the Rings uh, when Gandalf left Middle Earth. It's not said whether he took it. He might have. He probably did. I don't know. Yeah. I would take it. You might need it to, like, beat up some something. Maybe have some vegetables to... to to, to slice when you get out there, you know? Yeah, so you don't get scurvy on the way over. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe cool. there's a nice steak that needs tenderizing. It is, a, you know, the beater after all. <laughs> exactly. I am unsheathing uh, a pen here from this ivory sheath. It's not ivory. It's a pe it's plastic. I'm going to... We need to play a game. It's going to be fast, I promise. Okay. I need you, Jude, to give me six nouns. Any nouns you want. They can be crazy. Whatever you want. Give them to me and I'll write them down. Beater, uh, nope. horn. Yep. Horse. Yep. Hobbit. Yep. Nouns. How many? Have I got four. Uh, okay, let's see. Two more. Um, Two more. Anything nearby? Cat. Cat. And paper. Paper. Okay. Now I need six verbs. Oh God. So these are doing things. Uh, like yes, swim. I know what a verb is. I don't know if you know what a verb is. It's You're, hard. Okay. That's what she said. Um, <laughs> chop. Yep. Lick. Nice. Run. Yep. Die. 
Yep. Possess. What, Ooh. What am I up to? Five. All right, one, one more. more. Let's go left field. Seduce. Oh. Cool. I can spell that. <laughs> do you have a D6 near you? If not, I do. Uh, no, I do not. I shall roll a D6 for you. Number one. Okay, 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 okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Oh, no! Okay, we're about to play Name That Sword. I'm your host, Elfie McDorfson, and here we have Jude, who has just named his sword Horn Seducer. <laughs> <Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba>. <laughs> That's well, pretty good. Well, Jude, I hope you're proud of yourself because uh, that sword is going to be an heirloom of your family for years to come. I'm actually not unhappy about that. That's right. <laughs> ah. Horn seducer, yes, it is a mighty blade. Um, what's yours? No, you have to roll. Oh one. shit! Oh, okay, you want me to roll for it? Yeah. With using your babies, okay. Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. All right. This one and oh dang, cat possessor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just the, rude. the sword of the cat lady. <laughs> wait that's the wrong thing oh shit you know what that's perfect i love that so we've got horn seducer and cat possessor wow these are amazing thank you for playing my game oh man um it was horrible there is no word in quenya for seduce so i'm going to have to do a little bit of work but i will translate our sword names into quenya Oh, I would love that. That's amazing. All right, let us move swiftly on. Swiftly on to the next object. On the... I think we're on six. On the sixth day of winter, Morwen gave to me the helm of Hador. That's right, people. We're doing the dragon helm of Dor Loman. Also called Dragonhead of the North. Also called the helm of Hador. This is a fancy hat, guys. A helm is a fancy, fancy, fancy helmet. Or just a helmet, whatever. It is made of gray steel and adorned with gold, with runes of victory carved into it. If you have seen the cover of the somewhat recently published Children of Huron, there is a lovely piece of it. It features that uh, the man is the man is wearing that helmet on the cover. It's very nice. It is said to have powers to protect the wearer when the wearer is wearing it. It was made by our pal Telkar, the dwarven smith from Nogrod. Busy boy. He is a busy boy. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Because it was made for dwarves who use a lot of forges and do are doing like a lot of smithing, it had um, a a kind of visor that could be lowered to it was said to kind of protect the wearer from like the fire of the forge but this was a very very well what what made it kind of cool is it kind of it had an image of galaurog the dragon on top of it and so that's where the name like dragon helm comes from it had been made kind of after right after he this stupid dragon kind of came forth from the gates of morgul so he was kind of in the zeitgeist a little bit <laughs> this was a super heavy gigantic audacious helmet and it is said that like it was kind of hard for elves and like weaker men to wear it because it was not made for them it was made for a dwarf named azagal who was the lord of belagost this guy then gave it to Madros. We all know Madros. Let's give him a hand. 
It's a hand gem. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, sorry. Right? He only had one hand, right? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So Azagal, as a gal, gave uh, the helm to Maedros. After he saved Azagal's life during an orc attack, this is uh, around the Battle of the Unnumbered Tears. And actually, what's crazy is that Azagal was then actually slain by Galrung, the stupid dragon, who, who used to be on his hat. Can you believe it? Seems weird. It happens again later. Some foreshadowing, maybe. Mm. Maedros gave it to his cousin Fingon. And when our good buddy Hador of the House of Hador received the lordship of Dor Loman from Fingolfin, Fingon, who had the helm, gave the dragon helm to Hador. And it became this kind of like really fancy thing in that in the house of Hador. Hador didn't like to wear it. He didn't really like to lower the visor because he preferred to look upon the enemy with his own face. But uh, anyway, yep. He wore it, and it was a very cherished heirloom. He passed it on to his son, Galdor. Galdor, stupidly, was not wearing it and got shot by an arrow and died uh, in Ethel Syrian, so that sucks. It then passed to Hurin, and Hurin didn't wear it very often. It was said that maybe he was not quite as strong as his father. And Hurin, as we know, if you've read Children of Hurin, boy, that's a sad horrible story. He was captured by Morgoth. Torin then goes to Doriath as Thingol's foster son. And Morwen, uh, Turin's mother, the wife of Hurin, gave the helm of Hador to Thingol. Um, and he kept it um, and then gave it to, to little baby Turin as an heirloom. But he was too small and he was too sad to, to like really care about it. So he kind of didn't think about it for a while. He grows up, he requests it, he gets it back, and he wears it when he's gallivanting around Balerion. And they it's kind of sung, you know, through Balerion that the the famed dragon helm has returned. He ditches it in Doriath when he had to flee, but his good buddy Belig brings it to him, and then Belig and Turin are like two bros going around as the bow and the helm. And the helm is of course that dragon helm, which is cool. Now, things did not go well for our boy Turin, as we know. He ends up killing Glaurong the dragon, right? It's the same. That's the dragon again. He keeps coming back. And then, of course, he kills himself when he finds out that his sister slash wife is quote unquote dead. He's buried with his sword and this helmet is taken by the men of Brethel and given to the Lord of Brethel, who then gives it back to Huron. So, God, terrible story. Mm-hmm. Terrible, sad story. I don't know what happens to it after that. Passes out of memory, Um, so to speak, I'm sure. Yeah, there is a really excellent um, entry for this on the Tolkien Gateway website. And basically, there's a section where they talk about some other lore that's associated with this home in the Legendarium, which I should have done, but I was tired. And I wrote, I cannot do this right now, ah, in capital letters. So I invite all of you (laughs) to go on that website. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can read it for yourself because I was tired. Isn't that terrible? Can't believe I'm admitting that to people, but it's it's Yuletide, so we're sharing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I just thought that was it was kind of a neat item. It seems it's like one of those items that like seems to not always go well for the for the haver, you know? It's very northern European. Very Scandinavian, Nordic, tragic. I don't know for a hundred percent, but I have this vague recollection that that it it has a literary precedent somewhere in the Eddas or the the fin- the Kalavela or something like that. One oh, of those. Oh yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a cool it's a cool thing. I don't think I would want to wear a hat 
I don't. I'm not a big hat guy. You know. I don't. Are you a hat guy, Jude? Do you wear hats? I don't wear hats. No. Uh, my mother told me when I was a young man, a very young man, uh, in my tweens, that I had a misshapen head, uh, in oh. a, in an attempt to prevent me from shaving it, because uh, she wanted me to leave my hair long. Uh, and ever since then, I have felt that I look strange wearing a hat because it felt like it oh. sat funny on my grossly misshapen skull. Well, I'm looking at you and you have a lovely shaped skull. And But I will say that I, I actually do like your longer hair. I have like a couple of pictures from when you were doing your like darker long hair days in mm-hmm. the archive, the aforementioned archive. And they're so cute. But whatever. I like your shaved head too. It's cool. This is not Jude's hair is on blast episode. So. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. I guess if I had this cool helm, I might I might wear it. Especially if it could save me from stuff. That would be cool. Yeah. Well, on the seventh day of winter, a lendl gave to me seven palantiri. <laughs> that one actually rhymes. There you so go. that's pretty good. These are the seeing stones forged by the Noldor elves. Maybe made by Fanor? I don't know. Is that true? Yeah. I don't know. We, Were they? Yeah. Made by Fanor. Oh, that's awesome. It is Quenya. The word palantir is Quenya, and it means farseer. Lots of them were made. There was a master palantir in the Tower of Avalone in Tol Arisea. Um, remember this tower because we're going to mention it in a little bit. A bunch of them were gifted to the Numenorians, And when Numenor kind of went down the tubes... Alendil escaped with seven of these, and they came uh, to Middle-earth. Three of them were kept in Arnor with Alendil, and he gave the rest to his son uh, in Gondor for communication purposes. Of the three stones that were in Arnor, two of them, uh, the Amansul Stone, which you'll know as Weathertop, which was a humongous one, and the Anumina Stone, sunk into the frozen sea of Frochel, uh, when this king of Arnor named Avendui uh, got shipwrecked. We're going to talk about the shipwreck really quick later on, so I won't talk about it now. But they were, they're considered lost. The other stone was called the Elysterion Stone. It's held in Elysterion, which is a tall-ass white tower made by Gil-galad for Elendil. Um, it's actually not too far from the Shire. It could basically look back along the straight road to the Tower of Avalone. Remember I said mm. to remember it um it was uh which is where the master palantir was this stone was not connected to any of the other six palantiri in middle earth which is kind of interesting that is interesting i didn't i did not know that yeah yeah it was only to look it could only kind of it was like a one-way mirror it could only look i guess i read somewhere that it was uh it was sort of for Elendil so that he because when he was very homesick he could like look upon you know and see and see Valinor kind of thing see the Lonely Isle when he died the elves kept it safe um and it's taken by the ring bearers of the Undying Lands in 3021 at the end of the third age huh interesting pretty cool yeah are the other so the other four stones very quickly the Osgiliath stone this was huge this was another master stone. It was the master stone of Middle-earth. It was in Osgiliath, and it had power over all the other Palantirian Middle-earth. Um, it was so big that, like, one man couldn't even carry it. The stone, uh, it was kept inside the big dome of Osgiliath. The dome was painted like the night sky with, like, dark blue with stars. And uh, dome of star, Osgiliath actually means dome of stars. Hmm. So it was, you could see it was very special to them. Unfortunately, the stone... Fell into the Anduin River during the Kinstrife and the subsequent burning of the city. It could still be in the Anduin, or maybe it flowed out to sea, but either way, it's considered lost. 
The second one is the Ithil Stone. This is the stone. This stone came to Minas Ithil, i.e. Minas Morgul, and it was feared lost or taken by Sauron when the city was sacked. But well, we know that Sauron did take it because it went back to Barad-dûr, and that's what he used to set everything in motion mm-hmm. in the Lord of the Rings. Kind of cool. Number three is the Orthanc Stone. Uh, basically, it was up in the Tower of Orthanc, which was, of course, made by the Dúnedain, right? Yeah. Pretty sure it was made by the Dúnedain. Anyway, it was forgotten by the stewards of Gondor. It kind of hung out in Orthanc for a long-ass time. It was rediscovered by uh, Saruman. He was hoping it would be in there, and he was greatly rewarded when uh, when he finally got into Orthanc and figured out it was there. This stone was thrown at our heroes by Grima Wormtongue. <laughs> Because um, Grima didn't know what it was. He didn't realize, you know, how important it was and kind of yeeted it at Gandalf <laughs> and everybody. And this is the stone that Pippin used by accident and that Aragorn used to reveal his ancestry to Sauron. So that's pretty cool. And the last one is the Ar- uh, the Anor stone. It was placed in Minas Arnor, which was later, of course, renamed Minas Tirith. This stone was kind of kept secret by all the stewards until Lord Denethor II was like, look what I got. I got this fancy stone. He used it to kind of chat with Sauron, you know. They would just check in, play, play mind games, you know, whatever. Basically... Sauron used it to majorly bum out Denethor and convince him that there was no hope. And um, Denethor uh, was holding it when he died by suicide on that funeral pyre. Aragorn later used it. uh, He wrestled it to his will. But any lesser person who used it, if you looked into it, you would see two fiery hands of Denethor. And like his last kind of dying breath is really horrible. Gross. So that's fun. (laughs) Yeah. A little gross. They're pretty cool. I think they're awesome. Like yeah. I guess no, they're the Palantir, not really passed down, but like they're they're crazy. They're yeah, they're heirlooms of the kingdom of Gondor or the the kings of Numenor. They're cool. Absolutely, they're very cool. The next one that we're gonna do is one that Judith actually uh, wanted to talk about, which is which I didn't even think of, and it's really cool. So, um, and we'll go through it quickly because there's a lot of them. But on the eighth day of winter, the Valar gave to me like around eight white trees. There's a lot of white trees. There's so many of them. I didn't realize. We know that there's a lot of white trees. They're very special. They have a very fancy lineage. Sort of starting with Telperion, which of course is one of the two trees of Valinor. It was a little wee sapling that Yavanna sang into life and it grew into a mighty tree. It was silver. Uh, It had dark green leaves with silver underneath them, which is kind of important to think about. And uh, one of the flowers became the moon after Ungoliant fucked it up. So that sucks. That tree really doesn't have any descendants, but that tree was so beloved by Yavanna that she made a second tree in its image called Galathilion. It stood in the city of Trianon and it didn't have its own light like Telperion did, uh, but it was identical otherwise. And this is where we get all of our cuttings from. So this is a super important one. The first cutting was named Celeborn. It was planted on the Isle of Tol Arisea, and it is the first kind of link in our thing. So we move on to our fourth tree. Nimloth the Fair. Nimloth was a cutting of Celeborn, um, and it was given by uh, to the men of Numenor by the Eldar from Tol Arisea, kind of as a gift of friendship. So I, I really like that. What a cool thing to give to them, huh? Mm-hmm. It grew, it was planted in the king's court in Armenelos in Numenor. 
And it was said to like blossom each day when the sun sets and it like really smelled very beautiful at night. Um, well, you know who really hated this fucking tree? Anatar yeah. slash Sauron, right? <laughs> he hated this fucking tree because it was a memorial to the Eldar and it had the light of the Valinor and he hated it. So over time, Sauron managed to convince the asshat of the nation, King Arpharazon, and his followers to cut it down. Um, which super sucks. And then to add insult to injury, Sauron used the wood of it to build the first fire in the temple of Armenelos and burn it to the fucking ground, which sucks. Yeah, that's a that's a real move, uh, a real power move on Sauron's yes. part. Right? That jerk. Luckily, before this happened, somebody comes in and kind of saves it. So basically, there was uh, Amandil heard a rumor that this was going to happen, that, that they were going to cut it down. And he let Isildur know that this was going to happen. Isildur was like, what? You're not going to cut down that fucking tree? Fuck you. So he dons a disguise and he sneaks into Armenelos. And remember at the time, the faithful, which he was one of the faithful, were not allowed in. And that tree was strictly off limits. But he was like, fuck you, fuck you. And he like ninja his way in past all these guards that were guarding the tree. And he was able to take a single fruit from the tree. On the way out, though, he sort of had to fight his way out, and he got, like, tons of very mortal wounds. He made it back, and he gave the fruit to Amandil, who planted it, and then Isildur basically lay dying. Like, that was in autumn, and he lay dying, like, all winter. And then finally, once the little sapling sprung its first leaf in spring, Isildur was, like, magically saved again. He was fine, <laughs> um, which is very cool. Yeah. This is the seedling that Isildur took to Middle-earth during the downfall of Numenor. So that's fun. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I would think to grab a plant if, like, everything was burning around me, but I'm so glad he did. Yeah. Because that led us to the seedling of Minas Ithil. So Isildur brought the little thing. It was planted in Minas Ithil, and unfortunately it was destroyed by Sauron after he took the city during the Second Age. But don't worry, because there was another sapling that went to Minas Arnor. So it was planted in Minas Arnor by Isildur in memory of his brother Anarion, who had died um, unfortunately, this tree also died uh, during the Great Plague in 1636. Uh, but don't worry, because there was another sapling taken from it. Uh, and it was planted by uh, King uh, Tarondor, who became king after the other king died. He was his uncle. He died during the Great Plague. So it was this guy who moved the capital from Osgiliath to Minas Anor. Uh, later to become Minas Tirith. And he was the one who planted this sapling in the in the citadel, in the courtyard there in the, the what is it called? The Court of the Fountain. And it was there for a long time. And then unfortunately it died. And it left standing, they left it standing there kind of until the king comes. So that's the dead white tree that we see. That's very iconic. Um, after, even after Aragorn was made king, the tree did not come back to life. That was just like a movie thing, but that didn't really happen. But don't worry. I mean, you're saying, but there's no more saplings because it's dead. True. But don't worry because there's a magic sapling <laughs> that we did know about. So after Aragorn was crowned king, he and Gandalf decided to go for a hike just for funsies. You know, they got their packs on, got some patchouli. They were ready to go. They went up to Mount Mandil uh Mindaloin, I can never say that, Mount Mindaloin, to kind of survey the lands. And this is when Aragorn and Gandalf have this talk. And Gandalf's like, man, kind of my, the time of the elves is over. Like, we're leaving. And Aragorn's like, oh, man, but I'm worried. Like, when I die, 
how's it going to go with men? You know, we're not, we're not, you know, the dead tree's still dead. We're not doing that great. And Gandalf's like, ah, don't worry. Don't worry. Look around a little bit. Aragorn looks around. What? There's another sapling. There is another sapling growing on the mountain. And he was like, oh my God, how is there another sapling? And Gandalf tells Aragorn, don't worry about it. It's fine. Sometimes, you know, fruit gets planted and then it kind of hangs out for a while. So just be (laughs) glad it's here. But he does say that, yes, this is indeed of the line of Nimloth, Galathilion, and Telperion, because it has those dark leaves with the silver underneath, and it's a white tree. So get, so our boy Aragorn is so excited, he digs it up very easily, takes it back, they remove the old dead white tree and, like, bury it somewhere. I don't know about that. And they plant the new one, and immediately it takes root and starts growing, and yay, we have a tree again. Wow. <laughs> That's the story of trees. I have uh, no green thumb abilities. Do you? Are you a, Are you good with plants? I could never keep a tree sapling alive. Nope. Couldn't. Great. We would be the reason why the white tree is dead. Yeah, that would be us. <laughs> Great. Excellent. I love the visual, and I love the idea of them. Um, I love the lineage of it. Um, I think it's a really cool metaphor for the line of kings. Um, the way that it dies off and is reborn in new cuttings. Um, yeah, I think it's a not particularly subtle metaphor for the line of, of for Isildur's line, but I think it works uh, the way the, the tree dies when the, uh, the line of stewards is in charge. Like, but it's cool, and I, I really like the way that it works, and it's, it's a really graceful uh, metaphor. And um, I think, like I said, the visual is, is really fantastic. So, Yeah, I mean, so much about like Middle Earth is like, you know, the life that grows, right? Or about Arda is like the life that grows there. And I love that, you know, we have all of these artifacts that are like stone and jewels and these and swords and things that were made, but that there's also this natural thing that kind of keeps renewing itself. It's very, it's lovely and it kind of uh, is very helpful in a way, I think. It's mm-hmm. very nice. Yep. Yeah, it's perfect that it's like one of the sigils of that house, right? It's very cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, now we're going to talk about probably one of, I think, the thing that you were throwing shade on. Uh, uh, no, on actually. the ninth day of winter, the doors of Erebor gave to me the Arkenstone. Yeah, sorry. Yes, you're correct. This is the one, <laughs> this is the one that I was throwing shade on. Um the Tell me your beef with the Arkenstone. What's your beef? So we've talked about the fact that The Hobbit is fairy fan fiction. And yeah. it's a kind of a riff on older stuff. And the Arkenstone. So if you go back and look at his notes, Tolkien talks about the Arkenstone. And the function of it is like, how do you get a, like, a Hobbit's portion of the treasure back to Hobbiton? That's where he kind of starts coming up with this idea. But the solution he comes up with, it, I mean, it's a Silmaril. Like, it's a Silmaril. <laughs> like, it's a Silmaril. Okay. Um, oh. It might not actually be a Silmaril, but it it's a Silmaril. Oh, um, shoot. I didn't even think of that. That's so cool. One of the Silmarils gets chucked into the earth, into lava, and then they, yeah... Um, but a lot of the qualities that are used to describe it are similar. There's some linguistic things behind some of the other names for the Arkenstone. So 
I mean, it's not a Silmaril, to be clear. I'm not saying that it's a Silmaril, but I'm saying when he was writing The Hobbit and he didn't have to worry about anyone knowing what a Silmaril was, he mm. was comfortable making something that, that he didn't have to declare wasn't a Silmaril. Yeah. If you, that if makes you know a what lot I mean. of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of things like that, like Thranduil and, you know, where he's like, well, this, you know, since it's not Middle Earth, I can just rip off my own stuff. And, you know, later on he has to go back and like apply a veneer of difference to things to make them not what they, what he ripped them off to be. Um, so the Arkenstone and the Elven King and bits and bobs here and there. So the Arkenstone's the big is the big one on this list though. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, as a quick refresher, um, the Arkenstone is referred to as the Heart of the Mountain, the Arkenstone of Thrain, and we we meet this beautiful jewel in The Hobbit. It was dug up by the doors of Erebor during the Third Age. King Thror took this stone as an heirloom of Durin's folk, and he basically put it above his throne. And it really seemed to mess with his head a little bit. He sort of became obsessed with it. When Smaug came to basically pummel Erebor and take all the treasure, Thror hid hid this stone in like a giant pile of treasure and it basically was kind of lost there for a very very long time and we fast forward to the hobbit and we get to our pal thorin oakenshield who is king thor's grandson and thorin is fucking obsessed with this stone too and he calls it like his father's stone it's like his goal to find it it is priceless to him when they end up retaking erebor like he asks all the dwarves everybody in the company to look for it um, and refers to it as an heirloom of his house Of course, it's found by our boy Bilbo. And Bilbo, when he sees it, there's a wonderful, uh, as Jude was saying, there's a great description of it. And I'll read it quickly. The great jewel shone before his feet of its own inner light, and yet cut and fashioned by the dwarves who had dug it up from the heart of the mountain long ago. It took all light that fell upon it and changed it into 10,000 sparks of white radiance shot with glints of rainbow. So... Sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. I want that thing. It sort of ensnares Bilbo in a way, and he uh, doesn't tell Thorin that he's got it. He rolls it up in a rag and hides it in his pillow. And later on, we fast forward in the story, Thorin refuses to kind of share the treasure with, with his allies, and Bilbo ends up sneaking out and giving the Arkenstone to King Thranduil, the elf king, right, and Bard, in the hopes that they could use it to kind of as like a bargaining chip to secure some treasure back from them. Basically, things don't go well. They're going to be in a big old fight. Everybody's mad. And then the Battle of Five Armies start. So they're forced to kind of all come back together, even though they hadn't really resolved this. Uh-huh. And in the end, Thorin was reunited with the Arkenstone only after his death in the Battle of the Five Armies. The quote is, They buried Thorin deep beneath the mountain, and Bard laid the Arkenstone upon his breast. There let it lie till the mountain falls, he said. May it bring good fortune to all his folk that dwell hereafter. Um, and that's from The Hobbit. It, it really... So my question to Jude about this is, you know, it people become obsessed with this thing. And as you say, perhaps it is a Silmaril. Like, is is this, like, scholarly, this idea of, like, the Arkansone having power to enchant people? Is that a thing? Or is that something I'm reading into it? I mean, so, two things. One is... It's not a Silmaril, but because he definitely had the Silmarils on the brain when he was inventing it, when he was coming up with something here, he makes it act like a Silmaril. So you have Thor- you have Thorin, 
I can't remember exactly his words, but he swears that like none may none may hold it except for him or something. He 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 swears yeah. like a little mini oath about right. it and he acts very crazy about it and they find it in the earth the way, you know, the where you might have found the Silmaril that was cast into the lava into the cracks of the earth. So it's not a Silmaril, but he clearly was thinking of the way the Silmarils affected people when he was inventing it Okay. to me. That said, I don't think it necessarily has any magical properties. I think it's a case of like genealogical dragon sickness. Um, okay. Because there, he does talk a lot about like the dragon sickness in this book and in other places, the way it can infect a person or even a line. And this has become a thing that has tainted Thorin's line. Um, wow, that's interesting. Because we see that again and again, right? Yeah. And I think, wow. that's a, I think that's what's going on in this case is you have this jewel and I think it corrupts kind of his, his line and he falls to that corruption as well. Um, so wow. that's my sense of it. Right, because he's a, I don't know, he seems like a cool dude through most of it. And then, like, all of a sudden, he's, like, doesn't want to share and is being really weird about the treasure. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, the whole thing is, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. I don't yeah. know. Honestly, like, I don't, I'm not one of those people that, like, won't give up the whole, it's a Silmaril ghost. <laughs> but I wish it were, because that certainly yeah. would make the story make more sense yeah. if it were a Silmaril it would make way more sense. Like it would make it consistent and that would make perfect sense. You would just, I mean, like that would be cool, but it's not. I'm just saying it would make sense if it were. <laughs> it would be a nice through line, right? Yeah. Tying all that together. It would be, and it would yeah. just be cool to kind of know like what happened to that silver. Yeah. Right? Well, but on the other hand, like I like that they're like gone forever. Like it's yeah. the, the intention there is very clear that like they're gone forever. Like that was, yeah a closed door and that's fine but like yeah it does it would have made sense if if it were a silver so anyway that's really cool well thank you for for saying that because i i hadn't i hadn't read about that so that's very cool all right moving on on the 10th day of winter uncle bilbo gave to me to kiss up uncle bilbo i'm shoving two into one like the spice girls where to become one <laughs> Uh, because they, everyone knows what they are, but they're so cool. I just wanted to mention them. So, of course, the first one, the Mithril Coat. Yep. That's cool. We love the Mithril Coat. Everyone knows what that is. Discovered by Thorin Oakenshield and the company when uh, they find the treasure in the Lonely Mountain. Um, he gives it to Frodo saying, Mr. Baggins, he cried. Here is the first payment of your reward. Cast off your old coat and put on this. Needle, needle, Gives yep. him the coat pretty nice um it, it said like something that it was probably like made for like a young elven prince at some point because it was pretty small right but it was a coat of mail silver steel the elves call it mithril and uh w- with it went a belt of pearls and crystals which sounds amazing <laughs> <laughs> why is that never mentioned again because i love that thing i love the scene um, where they talk about that in the movies um for some reason that scene always like sticks out in my head um in the lord of the ring in fellowship in fellowship yeah Yeah. it's Um, very cute yeah yeah uh 
that was a kingly gift. That line, and then you have uh, Gandalf like, I never had the heart to tell him its worth worth was greater than that of the Shire. It's so nice. I know. And then Frodo like completely conspicuously like opening his shirt and being like, ooh. (laughs) I got it. So nice. Well, Bilbo, not knowing the value of it, loaned it to Matham House, which is like the little kind of curiosities museum in the Shire. And he did take it back before he went to Rivendell. When he's in Rivendell, he gives it to Frodo. um, And this thing saves Frodo's life on more than one occasion. It was taken by the orcs when Frodo was in some spidery trouble up in Kirithungal. And the coat was shown to Aragorn at the gates of Mordor. And folks there were sort of freaking out, thinking that Frodo was dead. Gandalf... Somehow got it back. I don't really remember. He got it back. And they returned it to Frodo at the end. And it saved him once more uh, when Saruman kind of jumps him in Bag End um, at the end of mm-hmm. Return of the King. So that's pretty cool. Very helpful little baby coat. Yep. Yep. The second gift is, of course, Sting. Uh, this was the dagger that was found in that aforementioned troll cave by Bilbo. Gandalf and Thorin and all the dwarf boys. Um, it was super sharp. It was very strong. It easily cut through like Shelob's spider webs and it cut through a troll hide that like Boromir's sword couldn't get through. It grows blue when orcs are close. Um, and oh yeah, just like its fellow cave dwellers, Glamdring, who we talked about in Orcrist. Bilbo gave the sword to Frodo and he used it during the Lord of the Rings. And it saved him tons of times. Um, and even Sam used it to storm the Tower of Kirithungal to rescue his boy Frodo. And when Bilbo and Frodo left Middle-earth, um, Sam, uh, the, 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 the sword of Sting was given to Sam. And it's not known um, if Sam took it when he left Middle-earth for the Undying Lands as the last ring bearer or if it stayed with his family. But I don't know. I, I kind of hope it stayed with his family in a way because it's awesome. But yeah, that's yeah. it. So easy. We don't even need to talk about them much because what yeah. is there to say? Yeah, They're pretty cool, much. though. I never got nothing cool from my uncles, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I got a laminated card to the Monkey Uncle Club. What does that mean? All the uncle. I have four uncles, and they all glued their faces onto the body of a, of a monkey or a, uh, an ape, and... <laughs> Uh, they gave me a card that made me an honorary member of the Monkey Uncle Club. That's amazing. That's a great gift. I thought so. They knew just what you wanted. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Speaking of just what I wanted, on the 11th day of winter, Aragorn gave to me the ring of Barahir. Yeah, thank you. I know, right? We had to do it. Uh, Okay, this is a very cool ring. Um, People know a lot about it, but it has a pretty cool backstory. This is um, probably my favorite one on the list. Oh, awesome. I'll give everybody a quick rundown, and then I want you to tell me why it's your favorite. Um, I I mean, I feel like I can guess, but I want to just hear what it means to you. But very quickly, it's two serpents intertwined with eyes of green jewels and crowned with golden flowers. It is the symbol of the house of Finarfin. Basically, it was brought to Middle-earth by your favorite boy, Finrod Feligand. Mm-hmm. As an uh, heirloom of the house of Finarfin. 
That's from the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, Bar here, an Adain man, saves Finrod's life during the Dagor Bragalock, which is the fourth great battle of the Wars of Beleriand, um, when Finrod and his small crew was basically surrounded by orcs and cut, cut off and they were closing in. To thank him and as a sign of friendship, Finrod gave Barahir this ring. And Barahir loved that thing, wore it all the time, until he was unfortunately killed by orcs. Led by Gorgel, which is a dumb name. <laughs> Gorgel! Sounds like what I do in the morning. Gorgel. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, basically, that guy cut off um, Bear Hare's hand uh, and the ring with it. Well, that wasn't going to stand for Baron Bear Hare's son, who went to avenge his father. He was able to retrieve the hand and the ring. He reburied the hand with Bear Hare's body, um, but he kept the ring, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. That's from the, the Lay of Beleriand. Baron then uses the ring to prove his lineage uh, to Thingol when he en- enters Doriath. He was seeking Finrod's help in the quest for the Silmaril, which we know does not go well for Finrod, but he was able to to kind of prove himself uh, using that ring. And Baron passed the ring to Dior, his son, who then passed it to his daughter, Elwing, who then passed it to her son, Elros. Whoa! Mm-hmm. Lots of things are happening. Elros brings the ring to Numenor in the Second Age. It was an heirloom of the kings of Numenor. Until Tar Elendil gave the ring to his eldest daughter, Silmarion. Um, and she gave the ring to her son, uh, Valadil, who was the Lord of Andunie. It was handed down through the Lords of Andunie until the last one, Elendil. This is in the Unfinished Tales. In the Third Age, the ring passes from Elendil to Isildur, to the kings of Arnor, to the kings of Arthedon. And the last king was that guy who we mentioned way up at the top of the episode when we were talking about the Palantiri, this king named Arveduai. He was fleeing his homeland um, from the forces of the witch king. They were coming in to get him. He and a group of men basically end up really far north. They run into these guys known as Lossoth of Frochel. It was the group of men that lived on the shores of this like ice bay named Forochel. And he was kind of exiled there with them for a while. But they kept this king and his men safe. The chief of this group said, hey, maybe don't go aboard that ship that's coming to rescue right now. There's a big storm coming. Just don't do it. But of course, the king didn't listen. And he's like, hey, man, thanks for keeping me safe. Boop, takes off the ring, gives it to him and says, why don't you keep this in case you ever need it for ransom or whatever you need. In case you got to bargain it for something. He gets on the ship and the ship sinks. And that's when those two Palantiri go down. Mm-hmm. So it all it all kind of comes together there. The line continued as the chieftains of the Dunedain of Arnor. The, re- the ring was uh, ransomed by the Lossoth to the Dunedain of the North. And the ring was then kept in Rivendell for safekeeping. When finally it was given to Aragorn. Aragorn enters uh, Lorien and meets Arwen again. And Aragorn gave the ring to Arwen and Domniel uh, at their betrothal, which is lovely. Um, and no one knows what happened to the ring of Barahir during the Fourth Age. Maybe they gave it to their son and to the kings of like Gondor and Arnor. Maybe it's buried with Arwen in her grave. We don't know. Yep. But that is the long story of this ring. Um, it's very cool. And uh, boy, it, it really comes from a place of friendship in so many instances. Yeah. Tell me why you love it. Because Finrod's a boss. <laughs> After all that. Uh, <laughs> no. I, so, yes, because Finrod's a boss. Uh, because 
it has such a great connection to so many epic lines um, because it is a symbol of fidelity and honor in the sense that like it's a, it's an heirloom that is given away so many times. Finrod gives it away because even though it's a it's an heirloom of his house, he's he it's given away in thanks, and that costs him his life. Oh, um, yeah. And then it's becomes an heirloom of this you know this this other house that will become so important. And I just think it's a, a very cool piece. Uh, but mostly because Finrod's a boss, and I just fucking love Finrod. Um, <laughs> I know. So you love him. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I uh I just I love that, I love that it's also something that, you know, uh newer fans that may not be into the legendarium know that ring as well too. So when you uh, for me at least as someone who started out as a very casual Tolkien fan, you know, I I recognize that ring from the movies or whatever it is or from the Lord of the Rings and then all of a sudden it has this big long lineage and for me that's one of those like grounding moments of Tolkien where mm-hmm. where that legendarium feels like mythology, it feels like real um because yeah. he's given it those roots and I I just love it. That ring really does that for me. It's so cool. Yeah, that verisimilitude of of depth, where there's enough depth in enough places that it feels like like mythology. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, it's amazing. Well, from one of everybody's favorite uh, heirlooms to like probably one of the most notorious heirlooms, uh, we had to end with um, like a real bitch of a thing. <laughs> so. <laughs> On the twelfth day of winter, Thingle did not give to me. Now, Glamir. Now, Glamir? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Oh. All right. I don't know. Now, Glamir. Oh boy, this has a. This is. I'm gonna. We're gonna race through this, but it is uh, a fantastically sad and dumb story. And dumb meaning I, here, like, wow, I can, it's so sad. I can sum it up. It's such an easy story. <laughs> it's a giant pearl except it's not from a fish it's or i know i know where pearls come from i know they come from clams (laughs) it's not from the sea it's just like it's described as being pearlescent but it's like a it's like a gemstone the dwarves want it thingle is a dick and says you can have it if you make me a sweet thing to put it in and the dwarves are like that seems legit and they make this fancy piece of jewelry and then he's like nah and they kill him because he sort of like welches on the deal. And uh, then they take it and he uh, is dead. Yes, it has. It's a little bit. There's a little bit more to it than that. But yes, those are the bones of this sucky thing. So this item now, Glamir, was a necklace. It was made by your favorite boy again, Finrod Filigand. Basically, by him working with the dwarves of Arid Luin, which are the Blue Mountains, that great uh, range at the far west of Eriador. Finrod brought with him um, from Balinor a bunch of beautiful uh, jewels. And this necklace was made and by these dwarves using these jewels, and it was said to be one of the finest pieces in the Elder Days. Um, it was Finrod's, one of his most prized possessions in Nargothrond, right? The city of Beleriand that he founded on the river Narag. Um, basically, after the fall of Nargothrond, the city, remember, was attacked by the dragon Glaurung and his orc host. The necklace was basically part of Glaurung's treasure and kind of forgotten for a while. Well, it wasn't totally forgotten, because after Glaurung was 
killed by our boy Turin Turinbar, who we heard about earlier, the treasure was sort of claimed by the petty dwarf Mim, which if you remember Children of Hurin, um, Mim is a dwarf who, whatever, he, I think he kind of has a bad deal, but he does end up uh, betraying Turin, which comes back. Uh-huh. It's an important part of this. Basically, remember Turin has that father named Hurin, right? Who was so Hurin, as we know, was part was taken by Morgoth. He had to watch his family basically fall apart, watch his children die, held his wife while she died, and then he basically went crazy. And he walks around and he goes to all these different places and fucks a bunch of shit up because he's so sad. Eventually, he he makes it to that treasure and he he meets the dwarf Mim and knowing what he did to his son because he could see it all. He kills him, which is very lame. And he takes uh, the treasure and he takes it back to... To to Doriath? Yeah. So he takes it back to Doriath and basically he throws it on the chair of Thingol and is like, hey, thanks for aiding my son, asshole. Basically, he's still under this, like, under Morgoth's cloud and he's blaming Thingol and his wife Melion for all this bad stuff that happened to his wife and kids, right? And Melion's like, now Melion is super cool, right? She's a Maiar, is that right? Mm-hmm. Or an Ainur? Something. She's a, she's a Maiar. She's amazing. And she's like, okay, just, okay, let's just chill for a minute here, dude. And she basically talks to him and basically says that her, that, hey, your wife and kids had the best care in Doriath. We did not want your wife and daughter to go. We did not want your son to go. They did what they wanted to do. It's not our fault. And it's a little this is all Morgoth's doing. It's a little bit Thingol's fault. Well, <laughs> basically, I, I, her my... words touch this guy. And he's like kind of ashamed of like being kind of an asshole. And he ends up giving the necklace to Thingol and says, Receive now, Lord, the necklace of the dwarves as a gift from one who has nothing and as a memorial of Huron of Dorloman. For now my fate is fulfilled and the purpose of Morgoth achieved, but I am his thrall no longer. Um, so he gives it to Thingol. And yeah, that's the thing. Thingol, you're right. Thingol's kind of a jerk. Here's the thing about Thingol that I don't understand. Thingol is married to a Maiar. So in theory, Thingol should be like the purest of elves because he somehow has landed like a demigod. And yet he's arguably the biggest tool bag elf we meet that does not openly fall to Morgoth's corruption. It it doesn't make any sense to me at all. I just don't understand that. That's my my thing about Thingol. And so and we have a really good example of that here where Thingol like goes full bag of dicks on these dwarves and it costs everyone their lives. Like it has tremendously yeah. tragic consequences. Yeah. And it's like there's a I mean there's dozens of other elves throughout the legendarium who behave with greater grace that deserve yeah the attention and love of a Maiar more than this rancid sack of meat. (laughs) Well, speaking of rancid sack of meat, he decides he wants to refashion the necklace and he has decided he's going to set a Silmaril into it. 
So just a very quick recap, the Silmarils are those three sexy jewels made by Feanor, greatest of all his creations, containing the light of the Valinor, the two trees, stolen by Morgoth, started a whole host of problems. And spoiler alert, one of these Silmarils ends up in this necklace, and it continues to cause major drama. So, the Silmaril, at this point, was possessing Thingol's thoughts. So he, he had this necklace made. Or no, he had he had a Silmaril, but he wanted to find a way to keep that Silmaril with him all the time when he was sleeping or when he was awake. And he decided that a necklace is the way to do that. So he enlists the helves of the dwarves of, no, of Nogrod, right, in the Blue Mountains to remake the piece. So Thingol, while they're doing this, hangs out with them alone um, while they worked because he was kind it seemed like maybe he was a little bit of a... You know, he was like, Micromanager. Karen kind of, I need to talk to the manager. And as they worked on this, once they finished it, the, the dwarves basically fell in love with this necklace again, with the Silmaril. And when it was finished, the dwarves were like, hey, why should we give it to you? Because it was made by our forefathers for Finrod, who's dead. So fuck you, we're keeping it. And... Unfortunately, you know, the Silmaril had a hold of Thingle, and Thingle gets real racist and shitty. And <laughs> yeah, he does. Right? And he basically does like a how dare, but like very uncool um, and towards the dwarves. And they demanded that he demanded that they leave Doriath without payment. And they got pissed, and as Jude says, they fucking killed him, right? Yep. He kind of, he fucking deserved it, you know? And that's the thing. There's like this whole thing where... Yeah, you know, the last thing he sees is the light of the Silmaril, but he's like way under the ground, far away from like the beautiful Maiar who loves him. He's so stupid. Like, yeah. So the dwarves make a hasty run for it. They're like, fuck, we got to get out of here. They grab the necklace. They're pursued and they all but two of them are killed. Two of them get out and go back and tell their friends what happened. But all the rest are totally fucking killed. The necklace was retaken and brought back to Melian, who is super sad because her husband's dead. And she, basically, she sat with Thingol's grave, and she spoke only to uh, Mablum. Now, remember, Melion was uh, Luthien Tenuviel's mom, right? So, yes, just remember that Luthien is around during this story, too. So, she speaks to Mablum and says, Hey, can you take this necklace uh, for Luthien? And then she passes out of Arda, which is very sad. With her protection being gone, the girdle of Melion, which was protecting Doriath, was gone. And the doom of Doriath draws near. Ooh, a host of dwarves from Nogrod were roused by those two guys and come marching for war. And it ends up as the Battle of a Thousand Caves, in which the dwarves took the entire treasure of Doriath, including the necklace. The dwarves were then attacked by Baron and killed, and the treasure uh, was thrown into the river Asgar, except the necklace, which came back to Luthien. Luthien wore it for her whole life, and when she died the second time, remember, she died two times, um, the necklace was given to her son Dior, and it went back to Doriath. Now, the sons of Feanor heard about this, and they're like, fuck, that's our Silmaril, we're coming for it. They attack Doriath um, in the second Kinslaying, and D uh, Dion, uh, Dior was killed. Dior's daughter, Elwing, fled to Sirion with the necklace. The sons of Feranor were like, we're coming for you, bitch! Resulting in the third kinslaying at the mouth of the Sirion. Elwing jumped into the sea with the necklace. The necklace was lost. She was saved, along with the Silmaril by Ulmo, who brought her to her husband, Eolendil the Mariner, in her bird form. And the light from the Silmaril guided him to Valinor, 
The Valar set him, uh, set him and his ship and the Silmaril up in the sky, and a bunch of stuff happens, and a dragon falls, and then blah blah blah. Valerian is destroyed, and blah da blue. The Silmaril is now called Gil Estelle Sindarin for the Star of Hope. Oh, Ooh, that was a long one. I'm sorry, guys. That was a long one. But that <laughs> necklace. Fuck that necklace. What? <laughs> a lot of people died because of that necklace. Right? And because of that fucking Silmaril. Whew. Thanks for sticking with me. I really appreciate that. That was a long one. And here's the thing. All these stories are way more than my horrible resuscitation, like book reports of them. Um, so definitely get in there. Um, this is all the Silmarillion. It's in all these different books, and it's horrible and wonderful and great. So check it out. My final question for Jude. What is the best gift you ever got? And was it a necklace with a Silmaril in it? Uh, no, it was not. Um, <laughs> gosh, best gift I ever got. Um, hmm, that's a good question. Or maybe not best gift, but like memorable gift. Could be from childhood or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um... I don't know. I mean, gifts are weird, you know. <laughs> they are weird. Do you do you like giving gifts or getting gifts? I, or are you kind of like, oh my god, no I gifts. prefer giving gifts. Yeah, by a vast margin. Um, so I don't really have a good answer for this, but I will say that my my birthday gift this year, uh, uh -huh. I got a coffee grinder, but Ooh. it was a very nice coffee grinder, but. Uh, my son knew this and kept trying to tell me what it was. Um, so <laughs> my wife told him that it was a butt dryer. So, <laughs> so that it was funny and he would remember that instead of what it actually was. Uh, and you had no idea what it was? Oh, no. I, I mean, I picked up on it pretty early what it was. Oh. <laughs> but he kept telling me it was a butt dryer. So That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow when I when I go to grind some coffee, um, I'm going to say it's a butt dryer. And yeah. my husband will be like, that's weird. Yep. Why are you calling it that? That's awesome. That's a good gift. That's a great I know you've been doing a coffee of the month club. Uh, we actually stopped doing that because um, I can't stop buying coffee from, uh, not a sponsor, um, Onyx Coffee Labs. Ooh, I want to check them out. Nashville, I oh, think. Oh, wow. Cool. Is that right? Somewhere weird, neat. Um, but they're a uh, the coffee they produce is just fucking unreal. How good it is! Um, Dang. So yeah, not a sponsor. Onyx Coffee Lab, uh, check them out. I really like their lighter and medium roast, even though I prefer dark roast in general. But they have some really wild, like medium and light roast stuff that is just unbelievably good. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. Especially with all the holidays coming up, that might be a good thing to support yeah. a smaller business and get something nice. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, all right. Well, cool. I hope you enjoy your butt grinder. No, wait. Butt dryer. Thank <laughs> butt you very much. Butt dryer. Sorry, butt dryer. Oh, brother. Well, I hope that, I hope that this year uh, brings you some uh, fun and, and cheer at the end of the year and um, hopefully some more excellent gifts um, that are not like cursed or like will cause you to go crazy or you know anything like that i mean <laughs> i feel like a, a cursed sword would really like spice up 2021 compared to 2020 
<laughs> at least you'd have something to defend yourself with as it's trying to murder you. Yeah. Um, all that is to say, happy holidays, Jude, to you, and thank you for another excellent year uh, of Atherbath. This has been really fun. You too. Thank yeah. you for putting this uh, episode together. Uh, I uh, did not, and uh, Steph did this whole episode. So uh, thanks to you for uh, doing this one. Sure. I mean, they can tell. My episodes are all like uh, just glorified book reports, and I'm totally okay with that. But hopefully <laughs> you learn something new or, you know, m- maybe uh, want to take some time over the holidays to reread some of these great tales uh, because I-, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for, for going with me on that ch- on that journey to, to Giftland, to the Isle <laughs> of Misfit Toys. The road may go over on and on, but this episode is over! If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at atherbeth underscore cast. I can be found at Aramidic Jude. Steph can be found at The North Four. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Today's episode was produced by James Pearson. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays and happy new year from all of us to you. Yay, happy new year. Happy holidays. We love you. Stay safe. Bye. Bye. Do you want to roll a d6? Uh, actually, I do. Give me. Hold on. Okay. We can cut this out. We can cut this out. Dude is getting a d6. Oh, I had a d6 here. I don't. Yeah, no d6. So you'll have to roll it for me. Dude is not gonna have one. All right. <laughs>